Good morning, church. We're continuing with our study through the book of Ephesians. Let me pray again, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in Ephesians chapter 3. Father, we, we come as those who are thirsty. We come to the waters with no money. We come to the water to drink with no ability to sustain and to quench our own thirst. So we come ready for you to fill us. And we pray that we would incline our ears and that we would come to you and hear and listen so that our souls may live. And we trust your word in Isaiah 55 that you will make with us an everlasting covenant with steadfast and certain love. So we turn to your word this morning, and Holy Spirit, we rely upon you to lift up Christ in our hearts and to satisfy the thirst that we all feel for your truth, for your love, to be reconciled with our King and our Creator and our Father. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Reports about Christianity's death have been greatly exaggerated. That's pastor, British pastor Andrew Wilson from his book, Remaking the World. And he's right. Christian, reports of Christianity's death have been greatly exaggerated. The church may be ridiculed and marginalized in the West. The church may be persecuted and threatened in the Middle East. The church may be controlled and sanctioned in the Far East, but reports about Christianity's death have been greatly exaggerated. The church is the keeper and the herald of the gospel mystery. The church is the keeper and the herald of the gospel mystery. To keep is to steward, and to herald is to proclaim. And for most of the last 2,000 years since Christ walked the earth, the church has done this work of keeping and heralding under pressure. And honestly, the pressure is part of what kept the generations before us of the church dependent on Christ and hoping for heaven. Our passage this morning that Agnes read for us is one long sentence in the Greek. And it's really a digression from a prayer that Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then he'll continue in verse 14 in a few weeks. But this digression of thought that Paul is in the middle of is really a passionate aside about the role that God has given him to proclaim and to steward the mystery of the gospel. And Paul, it's as if he can't help himself but explain to the Ephesians why he has this stewardship and why that's such good news. Our goals this morning for this sermon, first to warn us away from a life of complacency and comfort with God. Secondly, to warn us away from tampering with the truth of God's Word. And third, to motivate us to big sacrifices for the sake of the evangelization of the lost among all peoples. So let's begin in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 3, a keeper of the mystery. 
a keeper or a steward of the mystery. And we'll find out later what this mystery is. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that Jesus gave him a job. Jesus gave him a specific job to do, and that job was to keep and to steward the gospel mystery. Paul has been running and suffering all over the Roman Empire so that the Gentiles would hear the hope of the gospel. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And from that point forward, he's going to move into the digression. But before he does, Paul introduces himself as a prisoner, not a prisoner of Caesar in Rome or of the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul is a prisoner of Christ, and he's a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, that is, those people who are not Jews. And he's under house arrest in Rome. So he's literally a prisoner in Rome on be, on, for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. But why is he there? He's there because Jesus gave him a job to keep and to steward this gospel mystery. Paul, upon his conversion, hands the reins to Jesus and tells him, lead. And Jesus leads Paul to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. And this gospel mystery became the primary driving force in Paul's life. It demoted this gospel ministry, every other ambition and passion that Paul had in his life. They became second in place of this one driving ambition. And this mystery of the gospel cost Paul. Paul's sweat and his blood was spilled all across the Roman Empire. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, Are they servants of Christ, these false teachers? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, and countless beatings, often near death. He's challenging the criticisms of these false teachers by showing how much he's been willing to suffer for the sake of this gospel mystery. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And beyond and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This mystery, this stewardship, the fact that Paul is a keeper of this thing cost Paul tremendously in his life with Christ. But it was a cost ultimately that Paul was happy to bear for Jesus and for the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes that we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given, driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul didn't just suffer for the gospel. He suffered knowing how committed Jesus was to use his suffering for Jesus' own glory and lifting up and also for the good of the church. 
the gospel would advance through suffering. If the gospel's subject, Jesus, suffered in order to make his life possible for us, then those who follow him would also likewise suffer in his place. Look at verses 2 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 3. And here we have the digression in thought. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So he's just been writing this letter, and in this letter, he's beginning to reveal the mystery that he'll make explicit in a little bit. What we have here is a digression in thought. Paul was about to start this prayer, and he has this passionate aside. He wants them to know that he counts this stewardship a blessing, and there's a reason he counts it as a blessing. Yes, I suffered for Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, but don't get the wrong idea. Keeping this mystery, stewarding this mystery of the gospel has been a blessing. God has given me a special role among the apostles to get this gospel beyond just the Jews to the Gentiles, to the nations. And yes, it cost me, but it was worth it because God revealed the mystery that the gospel would reach beyond the Jews to all nations. Now, Paul likely has in mind what happened to him on the Damascus road. Paul is persecuting the church. He's on his way to Damascus to continue his great persecution of the church. And then this happens in Acts chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, Luke says, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Saul, Paul, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Saul, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was a steward or a keeper of the mystery of the gospel. Paul stood at a threshold of a new chapter in God's redemption of his people. Jesus was setting aside Paul in a special way to make a full court press toward the Gentiles with an intensity of focus that seems to be unique for Paul as compared to the emphasis of the other apostles. For example, in Galatians 1.15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, it's not as if Paul was the only apostle who preached among the Gentiles. We have Peter's famous example with Cornelius. We also have the apostles in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, making plans and making arrangements so that the gospel could go forward to the Gentiles. But Paul does seem to have a particular stewardship from God by God's grace. But the emphasis is not for Paul alone. 
Paul stands at that threshold, and Jesus asks Paul, in particular, to set a new trajectory from that threshold, a a trajectory that he intended to mark the church as well, because the church is also a keeper of the mystery of the gospel. The church is also preserving the gospel in every generation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writes, If I delay, Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress or foundation of the truth. Timothy, if I'm waylaid, I want you to know how the church should behave together as God's household, as the house of the living God. The church has a job to do, and the job of the church is to serve as a pillar or support or foundation for the truth, the Bible. That's the job of the church, to hold up the truth of God's Word. That means the church doesn't create truth. The church doesn't just give lip service to the truth and then do its own thing. The church holds up the truth. We keep the truth. We steward the truth. And to do that, to be keepers and stewards of the gospel mystery, to be the pillars and the support and the foundation of the truth, we need to do a few things well by God's grace. To be the support and pillar of the truth, the church can't abandon the truth. We can't abandon the truth. We must hold fast to the truth, even if it looks to our eyes like the gospel is losing. We may stand alone at the office, we may stand alone in the classroom, but the church, Christians, are the keepers of the gospel mystery. And to do that, we cannot abandon God's truth. We also can't tamper with or alter the truth. We can't swerve from the truth even when the truth is embarrassing in our generation. We may be tempted to shrink back from the Bible's clear teaching. Right now, that clear teaching, particularly on sexuality and gender, but not only. We cannot swerve from the truth. We can't edit the Bible. God's Word is everlasting, and God's Word will not bend to the winds of whatever cultural moment the church is walking through. But to be the pillar and support of the truth, the church must also live lives that adorn the truth. We can't abandon the truth. We can't alter the truth. Instead, we must live lives that adorn the truth. It's not enough to hold on to truth. Some of us need to hear that carefully this morning. It is not enough to hold on to the truth. We must also live according to the truth. This is Paul's point in the letter to Ephesus. He spends three chapters, here's who you are, and then three chapters, here's how you should live in light of who the gospel has made you. It's not enough to hold to the truth. We must also live lives that adorn the truth. We must be attentive, not just to preserving the gospel message, but also attentive to how we're living our lives in light of the gospel message. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, and says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this close watch. For by doing so, by closely watching, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's a commitment to the truth, and it's a commitment to live lives in accordance with the truth. 
to build upon Paul's image of the church as a pillar and support of the truth, as the church being the keeper of the gospel mystery. We want the pillar to magnify the truth, not to contradict the truth. And so we must think about doctrine and about our lives. If we are knowingly harboring sin while outwardly stewarding the truth, then we're tarnishing the gospel that we claim to proclaim and to hold. If we're tolerating speech that is quarrelsome and argumentative while heralding the gospel, then 2 Timothy 2.14 would tell us that we're ruining our hearers. If we are going to keep and steward the gospel, then we must get used to assuming the cost of stewarding the gospel and bearing the weight of it. It will cost you to keep and steward this gospel mystery. Not just your credibility in the office in the classroom. It's more than that. Paul sets down an example for us to follow. An example of rejecting a life of complacency and comfort with Christ and instead pursuing a life of gospel risk and adventure for the sake of the lost. Our lives are too short not to take great risks for this gospel mystery. We are keepers of the gospel mystery. We're also heralds or proclaimers of this gospel mystery. And that's where Paul shifts in verses 4 through 7. Again, this is a knee-jerk reaction, an aside that Paul comes to in the moment. He's not merely a keeper and a steward of this gospel ministry. He's also a herald. He proclaims this gospel mystery to all who will, who will listen. And I hope to show in a few minutes that so it is for the church. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 3. When you read this, okay, he's already proclaiming and heralding. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right off the bat, Paul heralds this gospel mystery, and he does it in writing. And it's fortunate for us that he does do it in writing because we're benefiting from his, his letter to Ephesus this morning. By reading this letter, the church in Ephesus can perceive Paul's insight into this mystery of Christ, which he's about to proclaim. But for now, we read that the mystery of the gospel was not made known clearly in previous generations to Paul, but has now been made clear by his holy apostles and prophets, not just Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what was once cloudy has now become clear through the apostles and the prophets in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is not just a keeper of the mystery, a protector of the ministry, uh, mystery he's also a proclaimer, a herald. The mystery wasn't revealed with clarity in the past, but now it has been. So what's the mystery? Let's imagine the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. They are non-Jews from around the Roman Empire, and they hear Paul proclaiming the truth of the gospel alongside other Christians. And they forsake the worship of other gods. They turn from their sins, and they trust Christ along with the Jewish Christians in Ephesus. They sing now alongside Jewish Christians. And to help their singing, they sing the Jewish psalm book. And their Bible 
is the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. And in it, they learn of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they read how God rescued his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt, and then how God sustained them in the wilderness. They read in these Jewish scriptures how God came to live and tabernacle alongside his unholy people, a a holy God coming to live with this unholy people. They read how God gave his Jewish people a law to teach and to guide them, how God gave the Jewish people a land, and then how God raised up a Jewish king to lead them. They read of all these sweeping and majestic promises of God towards his people Israel. Now, we wouldn't blame the Gentiles for feeling far off, sort of ancillary to the story that God is writing distant from the work of God in the world, observers rather than participants in this great work that God is doing in creation and in history. If they felt like servants rather than children, I don't think we would blame them. Look at verse 6. This mystery, here it is, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that the Gentiles are members of the same body, that the Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery should have blown minds in Ephesus, and it should blow our minds too. Fellow heirs of the rich glory to come. Not servants, but children, and as children, inheritors of a rich and glorious inheritance. Members of the same body, not a separate body, not a close-by body, the same body. And partakers of a promise, the promise, not strangers to the promise, not borrowers of the promise, but partakers of the promise. Not because of work, not because of effort, not because of lineage, but because of Christ, because of the gospel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near, not by effort, not by lineage, not by work, not by law-keeping. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by verse 5? What could Paul mean by saying this mystery was not made known in previous generations? There's 2,000 years of promises made to Abraham and made to David. Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Or Genesis 22:18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice, Abraham. Or Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. God's intention was always to bless the nations through his people Israel. And Israel knew this. They knew that their mandate, their charge was to live as an unholy people with a holy God, so that the nations around them would see what that's like. It was a come and see. 
Israel knew this. So what is the revelation that is now clear by the Spirit that was once cloudy? What exactly does Paul have in mind? That the nations would be blessed by becoming the people of God. No one saw that coming. Yes, we saw that the nations would be blessed through a particular offspring of Abraham and David. But the fact that God has brought the Gentiles in and made them His very own people is new. It's the mystery of the gospel that has now become clear through Christ. That the nations would be blessed by being grafted into God's people being brought into God's people. This is Paul's point in Romans chapters 9 through 11, that as a whole, Paul says, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the offspring of Abraham and David. When Jesus walked the earth, as a whole, Israel rejected him as the promised Messiah, the descendant, the offspring of Abraham and of David. And through that rejection, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The gospel goes to the nations who are then grafted in, brought in, folded in to the people of God through faith in the blood of Christ on their behalf. Here's Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, sons and daughters and children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. This is the gospel mystery. So Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles are made into one body in the church. But it's not as if the Jews are abandoned. In Romans chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, Even if they, that is the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. They'll be enfolded in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you Gentiles were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, if you were a wild olive tree standing far off from the promises of God, and God could cut off those branches from the wild olive tree and bring you into His very own people and graft you into those promises, if He could do that, contrary to what is nature, into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the Jews, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And so we saw last week that Jesus comes preaching peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near to the promises, the Jews. And all of them come, not through law-keeping, not through heritage. They come through the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He is our access to God. So as we look at the world around us, what is our prayer? It is that Jew and Gentile alike would come to God through faith in Christ. That is the rally cry of the church. Come, all who are thirsty, to God through Christ in the power of His Spirit. Come. 
Paul says, you Gentiles are like these wild olive trees that are grafted in. And if God can do that, how much more will God bring in, will God, is God able to bring in the Jews? Anyone who turns from sins and trusts Jesus will be saved. And it is for that gospel mystery that Paul serves as a herald. The many are made one through Christ. That is the gospel mystery that Paul is a keeper of and a herald of, and the church is a keeper of and a herald of. The blessings of all nations has been secured by Abraham and David's offspring, Jesus. Because of Christ's shed blood and broken body and torn flesh, we are no longer two, we are no longer many, we are one. One bride, one body, one building, one temple, fellow heirs, members together, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. And to herald this message, to proclaim this message, was the aim of joys of Paul's life. And it's the job of the church. For example, in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, What you've heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is not the only herald. Paul, generation one, heralds the mystery of the gospel to Timothy, generation two, who then proclaims it to faithful men, generation three, who will be able to teach others also, generation four. Now, in order to herald properly and faithfully, there are three things we need to keep in mind. The herald of the gospel, the church, must proclaim the mystery accurately. We must proclaim the mystery accurately. It's not enough to keep it accurately. We must proclaim it accurately, which is about fidelity to content and fidelity to tone. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Paul writes, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There's nothing new under the sun. What's happening now was happening in the first century. We have got to proclaim the Word of God in season or out of season, whether it's in fashion or not in fashion. And we do so. We do this proclamation with all patience and teaching. We are in an age where shrill volume seems more important than sound logic, where sheer volume carries the day more than sound logic. And church, we need to speak better, not louder. We need to hold on with two hands. We need to hold fast to the truth, and we need to speak the truth like Christians. We can and we must do both. It is not true that we can't do both. We can hold fast to the truth and we can speak and proclaim and herald the truth like Christians. Francis Schaeffer once remarked that when he meets with a liberal 
theologian. There are two objectives for him coming out of those conversations. First, Francis Schaeffer disagrees with me. He wants the liberal theologian to know after that conversation that Francis Schaeffer disagrees with me. That was vitally important to him. But just as important, he wants that liberal theologian to walk away from a conversation with him saying, Francis Schaeffer cares for me. He wants both things to be true, and both things can be true. The courage to disagree with our neighbor can be held up at the same time with respect and patience and kindness and conviction. We can disagree and we can do so well. And we can speak with sound logic, not just volume. Here's the second thing we must do. We must proclaim evangelistically. Not just accurately, evangelistically. It's, it's our desire that this person would be saved. Here's 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Both things are true, holding fast to the truth and speaking in a manner worthy of the gospel, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The goal of the herald is that all peoples might repent and trust Christ, that all may believe. And if we stop heralding the truth, then we are useless to the world. If you let go of the truth, if you abandon the truth, alter the truth, edit the truth, if you're embarrassed by the truth, you have lost your usefulness in the world because it's the Bible that contains the hope that the nations need. Don't let go of the truth. But if our heralding is marked by speech that is quarrelsome and harsh and abrasive, then we have also lost the truth because we are not walking in a manner worthy of the truth. You know the saying, it wasn't what you said, it was how you said it. It's true of evangelism too. We need to speak in a manner worthy of the gospel so that our opponent may come to their senses. They may break free from the snare of the devil and embraced Christ in the power of the Spirit. The herald must proclaim the mystery evangelistically. And here's the last one, confidently. We must proclaim confidently. The gospel we proclaim has the power to save. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. I'm bound, but the Word of God is not bound. Jesus wins, and that fact changes everything. We may suffer and be bound up in chains like Paul, but the Bible is not bound. The Word of God instead bounds throughout history like a lion to free captives. Like Aslan, the Holy Spirit breathes life into people dead in trespasses and sins and makes them alive in Christ. And he is calling the nations to wake from the dead. And he is breaking chains and releasing prisoners. And because of that, 
Paul says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I am a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, and I will endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Reports about Christianity's death have been greatly exaggerated. This was true in the first century Ephesus, and it's true now. Yes, our king died for our sins, but he rose again, and he's alive, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he's interceding for us, where he is preparing a place for us, and he will return. And until he returns, the church is the keeper and the herald of the gospel mystery. We steward the gospel, and we proclaim the gospel, all in the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt you for all that you've done, all that you've accomplished. We exalt you for your victory, a victory that will be proclaimed and sung in all nations. We pray that we would be a church, church that rejects complacency and comfort and pursues gospel risk and adventure for the sake of your name. Help us to be faithful in keeping the truth and proclaiming the truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen.